Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have a good martini. We also have a bad and a crazy, but we also have some good news. We're really appreciative of all your questions, and a lot of them are very good for our upcoming uh, Q&A episode. So good, in fact, we're going to do two episodes. So uh, get those questions in as soon as you can, because we're going to be knocking those out uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and so uh, the faster you get those in, the better. But thank you for that. Remember, if you haven't heard our announcement about this before, it can be about just about anything. Uh, things we talk about on the podcast, elections here in the midterms, 2024, could be diehard, could be football, whatever. <laughs> Whatever you think uh, we would want to talk about and that you're curious about, uh, definitely let us know. And uh, once again, you can send that by direct message to me at Twitter at Dateline underscore DC. But anyway, let's get on to our good martini for the day, Jim. And I love good martinis close to home. We don't get those very often here in Virginia. So obviously we're pretty darn happy that Glenn Youngkin is the governor of Virginia. The option, of course, the Democrats threw at us last year was Terry McAuliffe, who had already been governor and then told parents they didn't have a say in education and so forth. So that really helped Glenn Youngkin get elected. Then Glenn Youngkin became the pariah of the national left for a while there in the early part of the year when he had the temerity to actually make good on his effort to give parents the option of whether their kids are masked in schools. Thankfully, you got a couple of Senate Democrats to go along since the uh, Democrats control that chamber, and that went through. And so now there's a new survey out from Virginia Commonwealth University, and specifically the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs, which is named after the former Democratic governor of the Commonwealth. And right now, Glenn Youngkin's approval rating, 49%, and a 38% reporting disapproval. And not only is he popular, Jim, uh, his ideas are popular. You and I are very uh, lukewarm on the idea of suspending the gas tax. Obviously, the idea of cheaper gas prices is good. But generally, our idea has been, you know, if you think it's too high, just lower it. Forget suspending it. Just do it. Uh, and But a lot of people uh, support that. Uh, 58% of Virginians supported that, even though the Democrats in the legislature didn't let it happen. Uh, Republicans, 69%. Independents, 58%. Uh, the elimination of the gas tax was also popular, with 76% of black respondents supporting the total elimination of the gas tax. Uh, getting rid of the grocery tax, also very popular, regardless of party affiliation. Democrats, 60% in favor of that. Republicans, 79% in favor of that. Independents, 76 A little bit of dispute over what to do with surplus tax revenue. We should get it back. Uh, other people want to uh, further fund government programs, of course. I think also importantly, Jim, 56% of Virginians support Glenn Youngkin's idea of lab schools. This is uh, moving us further in the direction of school choice, which is obviously great. And 79% of Virginians like his ideas to uh, put more funding into historically black colleges and universities. So, Jim, the ideas are popular. He's popular. Uh, and the other thing I like about Glenn Youngkin is, is he kind of sticks to what his job is and doesn't create any stupid controversies for himself. So, so far, so good for Glenn Youngkin. And when you talk about not creating stupid controversies for yourself, Greg, can you just, just pause for a moment? Let's just breathe in. <laughs> Listeners, can you sense it? Can you feel it down to the marrow of your bones? That's what it feels like to not be ashamed of your governor. <laughs> and if you're kind of chuckling, you're like, well, why, why would Jim and Greg feel that way? Think about who our last guy was. You know, <laughs> I don't know who put that picture in my yearbook, and I don't understand why anybody called me Coon Man and all that. 
Um, he had that, you know, extraordinarily embarrassing scandal early on in his, you know, the one term that he gets. And originally it looked like he was going to resign and admitted it was himself in the photo. Then he took back his admission that he was in the photo. And the whole thing, he was a dead man walking metaphor, politically and metaphorically. He was an embarrassment, but most you know, Democrats who initially had been very critical of him and said he should step down, refused to take any action. We just had this like walking embarrassment as our uh, governor for another three years. Throughout that campaign in last year, we were told that Glenn Youngkin was this dangerous extremist and he was going to drive away Virginia businesses. And, you know, we needed to elect a responsible, ethical, experienced guy who understand, who had his finger on the pulse of Virginia families like Terry McAuliffe. This is one of the reasons if Democrats feel like, hey, we, we call these guys extremists and the, the argument doesn't doesn't carry as much water as it used to. People don't listen the way they used to. One, it's because every Republican gets called an extremist. And then the second thing is, is that so, you know, sometimes Republicans get elected and they seem like normal human beings. Um, I noticed I came across a press release from Youngkin. There was some not terribly large business that was relocating to Virginia and it was going to create 66 jobs. This is the sort of thing we used to hear from Bob McDonald all the time. Now, until he had this terrible self-inflicted uh, gifts scandal, McDonald was pretty darn popular. There was talk about him running for president someday. And it was just I liked the fact that most of the time you mentioned about avoiding the self-inflicted scandals. Mostly when I heard from the governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald, during those years, he was announcing that some other company had moved their headquarters or was moving their operations to Virginia, attracted by low tax rates, attracted by low regulations, attracted by being a right to work state. And, you know, a bit like Texas was doing, a bit like Florida is doing. Uh, they, you know, there were a whole bunch of states in the South and, and, you know, with relatively conservative leadership that were going to businesses in these blue states with higher tax rates and higher regulations and saying, look, why are you operating there? Why, you know, like you can do your stuff just about anywhere. If you need to plant fields, okay, you can't move that very well. If you need a port, well, we've got some pretty good ports here in Virginia. Um, you know, that whatever you needed, our state could provide you with a much better environment for businesses. And, you know, bit by bit, you started seeing businesses realizing that. I'm glad to see Youngkin getting to this. It is a sign that uh, Virginia's economy is thriving. We're probably dealing with a labor shortage just like everywhere else. And it just is a, this is what a governor ought to be. Um, and so once again, I kind of have this, I want, I'd like to see a Democrat argument against a Republican that is actually specifically tailored to the candidate they're attempting to criticize instead of this generic, worn out, overused, this man is a dangerous extremist that doesn't fit. And I think people are tuning out. I think, you know, like it's good for Republicans that they're tuning it out, but I think it indicates a certain, uh, intellectual laziness at work in most in the work of uh, most political campaigns these days. No, well said. And uh, yeah, it, do what you said, do it well, do it competently, and don't create trouble for yourself. I mean, it's a pretty simple uh, philosophy. And there's some rumblings that Youngkin wants to run in 2024, at least others want him to run. I don't know how keen he is on the idea. I think that would be a tad early. I think we could certainly do a lot worse than Glenn Youngkin as a Republican nominee, but I feel like he'd have to start just one year into his governorship, and that's not a ton of experience uh, to get going yeah. on that. So. Do something. We, yes. we elected you to a job. Yes. You know, if you want, to, you can talk about a promotion after you've gotten some after you've gotten your chores done. That's right, Glenn. Yeah, you're you're allowed to. You're not allowed to run for re-election. So 2028, and you know, depending on what the situation is in the White House, uh, we've that, got some senators we could get rid of. 
Correct. <laughs> there's there's no shortage of things for a good, bright, accomplished Virginia Republican to uh, to do these days. But if you've got a job, finish that job before you start on the next one. Exactly. But I do have this, Glenn Youngkin, and listen to me carefully. Stop sucking up to the Redskins. I know they're not the Redskins anymore. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not calling them by their name. It's stupid. So stay away from Prince William County. I do not want them in your dome. I do not want them near my home. On 95, we're already stuck. And by the way, the Redskins suck. So keep them out. (laughs) Nobody wants them. Leave them in Maryland. Put them in D.C. Keep them away from me. Oh, my goodness. Did we hit a did that hit a nerve on on the usually mild mannered Greg Columbus? I do recognize (laughs) that, as I understand it, the last time I saw those plans for the the new stadium in Prince William County, uh, 40 percent of the parking would be in Greg's driveway. So I think he has good reason to complain about that. That's just a terrible idea. And this whole idea of, uh, of of government helping people pay for new stadiums. No, no. If they want to build one, they can pay for it. Stupid. Stupid. Even if we ever wanted to support any sports team owner, and we don't, Dan Snyder is the last owner we would <laughs> ever want to help. The last one out. on earth. The last right. one on earth. Okay. What? What? Al Qaeda can't use a contribution? <laughs> Doesn't ISIS rattling the K in or something? Is there anybody any better use we can use that money? Oh. The Wuhan Institute of Virology. Don't they need a grant? <laughs> I don't think they have a football team, but yeah, I get your point. I get your point. All right. Well, let's talk about another uh, bad political idea. And that's one that NetChoice has been trying to warn us about here. New polling shows that uh, 65% of Americans blame Biden and the Democrats for rising inflation. And if they stand on a united platform to fight that inflation, Republicans will likely do very well in this year's midterm elections. Only 1% of voters say they want Congress to focus on tech regulation, while 60% say they want lawmakers to focus on inflation. To win in November, Republicans should listen to the people and fight back against inflationary regulations pushed by progressives. NetChoice urges you to join it in demanding that lawmakers oppose Democratic pet projects like S2992 and tell Congress to focus on the issues that matter most to you. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, it's been a little while since we've focused on the FBI. And usually when we do, uh, we're not exactly throwing bouquets of roses and orchids at the FBI. It's because uh, they missed something. Think back to the originations of Disney CTU and uh, missed terrorist threats and so forth. And now it just seems they're getting intensely partisan, which is exactly the opposite of the point of the Department of Justice and the FBI. You know, the whole blindfolded Lady Justice thing. There's a reason she's blindfolded. She's not supposed to know uh, who's being charged there. It's the weight of the evidence and so forth. But Chuck Grassley, longtime uh, Iowa Republican senator, with a letter uh, that is uh, making it very clear that he does not believe the FBI is on the up and up when it comes to the investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, CBS News' Catherine Herridge got a copy of the letter, and here's her part of her report. Highly credible, quote-unquote, whistleblowers have come forward to a senior Senate Republican alleging a widespread effort within the FBI to downplay or discredit negative information about President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. The information provided to my office involves concerns about the FBI's receipt and use of derogatory information relating to Hunter Biden and the FBI's false portrayal of acquired evidence as disinformation, Grassley wrote FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Merrick Garland on Monday. The volume and consistency of these allegations substantiate their credibility and necessitate this letter. 
Grassley said the whistleblowers alleged that legitimate streams of information and intelligence about the president's son were characterized as likely disinformation or prematurely shut down leading up to the 2020 election. Well, we know a lot of different entities were doing that. Grassley also cited a 2020 FBI intelligence assessment that was, quote, used by an FBI headquarters team to improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation. Uh, it further alleges that in August 2020, FBI supervisory intelligence agent Brian Auten opened an assessment which was used by a FBI headquarters team to improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation. Jim, uh, I don't think this is exactly shocking, given what we saw in 2020 and the universal uh, government uh, response that that was Russian disinformation. But what do you make of uh, Grassley coming in with a lot more details on this? One, it is, I'm glad Grassley is doing this. This is a bad martini, but at least it is a uh, there's the good aspect of Grassley laying out all the details of what he's being told and what he's learned and keeping the public updated on this. Every once in a while, you get some sort of uh, report that, oh, the FBI is looking into this or the Department of Justice or federal prosecutors had some sort of uh, nascent investigation going on of Hunter Biden. And Greg, let's just take a moment and think about it. Hunter Biden doesn't just have the shady business partners uh, overseas, whether it's the Burisma board job or the Chinese investors, the giant you know, multi-carat diamond that he was given. Uh, there's the rather embarrassing, if not criminal, sex scandals, the stripper, the out-of-wedlock child. Uh, but you know, then there's the drug issues. There's the, you know, he has been very open about serious addiction. Uh, and yet in all of this time, at no point was Hunter Biden ever busted for possession. Oh, by the way, there was the gun that he was purchased that fairly obviously he lied about being when saying he was not uh, using or addicted to any uh, illicit substances on that form. Uh, there was a very suspicious claim that the U.S. Secret Service tried to seize the gun paperwork from that gun shop. Uh, then, of course, there was the fact that his sister-in-law took the gun and threw it in a trash can. Now, as, we, as I famously point out, that's not uh, that's not how red flag laws are supposed to work. You're supposed to have the authorities remove the gun from someone if you think that person is a threat to themselves or others. And then, of course, there's the painting selling, right? That he's, you know, all of a sudden he decides he's going to be a painter and people are selling these, you know, high five and even six figure sums for his scribbles. And we're told it has nothing to do with attempting to purchase influence with the president or anything like that. Greg, I tell you, for, for Hunter Biden to avoid any trouble, any prosecution, any criminal charges at all, I think it would take a miracle. <laughs> you ask for miracles. Half the listeners got that as soon as I left. As soon as the as soon as the, the M word left my. But if you ask for miracles, Theo, I give you the FBI. Absolutely. Um, I at minimum. Yes, it was kind of nice to see CNN saying the prosecutors have looked at this and they've the areas they're focusing in on are the gun charge and not paying taxes. As some couple of my colleagues, including Andy McCarthy, have observed, those are actually the least consequential ones. The really troubling ones are the idea that people are uh, get foreign businessmen, including very shady characters, some tied to the Chinese government, are getting into business deals with Hunter Biden because they see this as a backdoor way of influencing Joe Biden. Who knows? Maybe even blackmail or something like that. It just it stinks to high heaven. So if you are the and we, we've heard about this stuff for years, right after Biden's election in 2020, there's this fairly big story in CNN, and I, either CNN has, has really good reporters or somebody in the Justice Department leaks to CNN when they need to look like they're doing something. Because there was this fairly, you know, you know, the FBI is looking seriously at Hunter Biden, and then nothing happened, and it's now about a year and a half later. Now there's another leak to CNN. Well, we focused in on these. Okay, 
how long does it take to do this? Is it? I'm sure, I'm sure it is a very touchy subject to investigate the son of the sitting president. On the other hand, nobody's supposed to be above the law and nobody in the FBI is supposed to say, well, it's a crime, but he's the president's son and this would open up a can of worms. And boy, would this be controversial and people would accuse us of trying to influence the election. So we can't do this, right? You know, it really looks like the FBI at minimum has been dragging its feet on this. And if not outright protecting it, recognizing it, look, the president's got a, you know, well beyond the norm, ne'er-do-well son who keeps ending up breaking the law left and right. He's an embarrassment, but we can't let this disrupt the narrative that the administration wants to put forward. Everybody has embarrassing relatives. We're just going to, you know, put this under the rug. Absolutely unacceptable. Hopefully something gets to the bottom of this. But if you're wondering why people have lost faith in the FBI and why people have lost faith in the Department of Justice, it's things like this that convince people that there are at least two tiers of justice and that people who are well-connected do not get held accountable the way an ordinary citizen would. All those people that signed the Russian disinformation letter, that this had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, all those national security people, I'm not sure how any of them should be taken seriously on anything ever again. That was just blatant partisan politics by people who supposedly are above that. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And of course, as some folks may have heard, there was some controversy after the last national election in 2020. Um, we've got another one coming up this year, 2022. And uh, as we have said, one of the ways to make sure that there's less opportunity for accusations of election tampering is to run them competently and get results out in a timely and accurate fashion. That's kind of the job of secretaries of state, county officials, and that sort of thing. But, of course, uh, when you're encouraging folks to vote by mail, that makes things a little bit more complicated. But it doesn't have to be that way. But it's looking like it's going to be that way in at least one state, and I fear, Jim, it's going to happen in others. Last Tuesday, so over a week ago, it was the Maryland primary. Uh, it was primary for governor, primary for U.S. Senate, uh, Congress, and local races. And most of them weren't that close, thankfully, so we already know who won. But this uh, local county executive race in Montgomery County, which is basically to decide which radical lefty becomes uh, you know, the executive for the county, uh, it's very, very tight. And the count is still going on in excruciatingly slow fashion. This is from local news station WTOP. Business owner David Blair retook a narrow lead over incumbent Mark Elrich Monday night as the county continues in the Maryland Democratic primary for Montgomery County Executive. By Monday night, Blair led Elrich by just 134 votes. According to the State Board of Elections, that puts both Blair and Elrich at 39% of the votes cast in the race. But the race remains too close to call. In a Zoom briefing with reporters Monday morning, Gilberto Zalaya, spokesperson for the Montgomery Board of Elections, said it was impossible to say just when all the votes will be counted. Quote, we will add days if needed. We will do our due diligence. Ballots have until this coming Friday, the 29th, 10 a.m., to get to our hands. Jim, that's 10 days 
after the election. This is insane. We talked about this when uh, it took forever to get a winner of the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania. And here we go again. This is just with a local race. Think if it's a congressional race or a high-profile Senate race. The longer you drag this out, and especially in a race which would involve a lot more votes, you're going to be going weeks beyond uh, Election Day. And it's designed that way. It's insane. So I thought this story would be a good way as a jumping off point to discuss mail-in ballots. Now, most of us uh, are fine with the concept of, obviously, you have to have absentee voting. There are some people who are not going to be able to get to the polls. They're traveling. They're working the polls that day. They uh, have some, you know, the possibility of, you ever know when somebody's going to have car trouble, somebody's going to get sick or something like that. So, you know, a lot of people like to get their, cast their vote ahead of time, get it out of the way. We talked about whether it's too, there's a point where it's too early. Uh, I went and I checked, I believe it is late September when Minnesota will allow you to start casting ballots for the general election. We know obviously there's all kinds of October surprises and there's the chance you end up, you know, casting a vote for someone who is found in bed with a goat or something. And you're like, oh God, I didn't want to vote for that guy. What happened? You know? So in a circumstance like this, you know, there's such a thing as voting people too early, but I also believe that, you know, one of the standards we should have in all of our elections is that when the polls close, the polls close and all ballots have to be in by that time. Probably one of the strongest arguments. I have no belief that the uh, 2020 election was stolen or, or that Trump was a legitimate winner or something like that. But I do think the state of Pennsylvania got into some very iffy territory when they decided that any ballot that had a smudged postmark and it was not clear when it was postmarked should be counted. They chose to count them. Now, here's the thing. Biden's margin in Pennsylvania was larger than the number of ballots that fit in this category. So even if you threw out all of those ballots, which, by the way, I think there's a strong argument that you should, uh, Biden still would have won. This is not a result changing controversy. Nonetheless, I think it's a legitimate controversy. My attitude is your ballot should all be at the same time, because what you don't want to have is on election night to know, oh, well, candidate X is ahead of candidate Y by 2,340 votes letting anybody else who wants to get up to no good to say, aha, well, then we need to manufacture 2,342 votes in order to make sure our guy is the winner. I want everybody turning. I don't want one person casting ballots after everybody else is done casting ballots. I want one simple, clear deadline and one simple, clear universe of votes that have to be tallied. So when you come around to it, at minimum, you should have to have your ballot postmarked by election day. But I actually would go even further, Greg. I think it would make sense to say your ballot has to be turned in by election day. That means if you want to vote early, you probably have to cast your ballot, depending on how good the mail service is in your neck of the woods, anywhere from two or three days ahead of election day to maybe a week ahead of election day. You know, depending on, is there a chance that your ballot could get lost in the mail? Yeah, that's always a, there's always a risk of that. Does it happen? I don't think so. Um, but there are people. People who I've heard who say, yeah, I applied for an absentee ballot. And they never got it to me and stuff like that. You know, there's always a chance for clerical errors. I think you as a voter have a responsibility to make sure that your vote does get cast accurately. Um, we can argue about drop boxes. I think the uh, uh, there's apparently some AP study that said, well, there were no significant issues with uh, drop boxes in the 2020 election. OK, that, that still doesn't mean you don't have a spot where nobody's around in the middle of the night where people are putting in ballots. You don't have to be a paranoid conspiracy theorist to look at that and say, hmm, we really wouldn't do that for any other ballot. We wouldn't have a polling place and leave it unmanned for several hours or something like that. We wouldn't leave the doors open in a polling place 
uh, in the middle of the night. So I think there's a good, there's a legitimate reason to be concerned about that. But the single most important thing is that when the election is done, I want the when the election when the election day is done, election night, you close the polls at 7 p.m., 8 p.m., 9 p.m., whatever it is. I want that to be it. I want that to be okay. All the votes have to be in. I don't want there to be well. Here's the results. Well, we have another couple of days where mail-in ballots could arrive. So who knows who's actually leading, which is the circumstance they have here in Maryland. It is a formula for, to, to generate conspiracy theories. It is, a, it is a formula to design suspicion and mistrust and to feel like there's some sort of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. It's a terrible system, and I'd like to see a bipartisan effort to fix this. But once again, Greg, I'm not going to hold my breath. No, I'm not a big fan of early voting either, but I do think those votes are uh, are less, you know, c- corruptible, let's say, because, I mean, Jimmy Carter and Jim Baker were saying almost 20 years ago now that uh, that absentee voting was uh, the most vulnerable to that sort of thing. I don't I'm not saying how much of it is happening, but the more people you can get in an actual booth and record it that way, that's the way to go. Some people can't make it there. I get that. But uh, I think in-person voting should absolutely be encouraged. And since most places now give you weeks to do it, the idea that you can't make it maybe on Election Day uh, is no longer valid. So uh, the more people we can get in person, the better. And the more I think people will trust the results. So, Jim, on that note, have a good day and uh, see you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. We'd love to have them along as well. Uh, thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, uh, remember you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and get your questions in at Jim Garrity and I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. It's almost impossible for us to know what the exact cost of the this like shift, both legally and culturally. But it's really hard for us to know what it is. And it's hard for us to say that's exactly what was happening in Uvalde. But it's likely that this is affecting the way that police do their jobs. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.